This podcast is made possible by Host Analytics and U.S. Bank. This is episode 308. Um, so it's it's really critical, and, and as we see it, uh, every large enterprise that is a customer or prospect has a cloud strategy today. Uh, and the only difference between these enterprises is the pace at which they're moving workloads from data centers to the cloud. And so the cloud has created a major shift of dollars from capital expenditure to operating expenses. You know, users of cloud services typically see much lower capital expenditures, and, and this really requires the finance functions to have to model the cloud spend's impact on, on revenue and bottom line. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. Hello, it's been a while. It's good to be back. We're here to kick off our third season of CFO Thought Leader. And what an episode we have for you today. We begin our show with Larry Begley, CFO of Cloud Health Technologies. And we ask Larry about how the adoption of cloud technologies are impacting the finance function and the role of finance leadership. Now, Larry has some unique lines of sight into different organizations and how they're adopting these technologies today. So he brings some wonderful perspective. Following Larry, we have Albert Peng with us. Albert is president of Apps Run the World. His organization has studied cloud adoption from almost every angle, the costs, the empowerment, the sort of organizational realignment that occurs following the adoption. All of that, Albert will be discussing with us today. We'll hear from Larry first, then Albert joins us after these words from our sponsor. It's no secret finance professionals are dealing with some pretty complex problems these days. Now more than ever, they need tools that can help them streamline complex workflows and focus on bigger strategic issues. By bringing your finance organization together on a single cloud platform, Host Analytics automates everyday processes that would otherwise slow you down. By streamlining your planning, modeling, consolidation, reporting, and analytics, Host helps you connect your organization so you can react more quickly to changing conditions and make better business decisions to optimize performance. Let Host Analytics be your partner in leading the evolution of your business. Larry, welcome, and I want to just pop you the question. You were a CFO during the pre-cloud era, and today you're a CFO in the age of the cloud. How do you view the cloud as impacting the role of a CFO? What has changed? Sure. I I think there's really been a a sea change, Um, and I would say the major impact on the CFO's role is its relationship and frequency of its interactions with IT and engineering operations. Uh, as, as you think about purchasing infrastructure and 
you know, before the cloud days, essentially at the end of each year, the CFO would typically sit with the leadership of IT and engineering. And as part of the annual budget cycle for the following year, they would collaborate based on you know, projected business needs, what the company should budget for its IT infrastructure for the subsequent year. So they'd sort of put a stake in the ground, you know, late in year one. And then in year two, they would revisit uh, the IT infrastructure needs a few times during the year and, and tweak it as appropriate. You know, today, uh, given the dynamic nature of the cloud and the ability for cloud infrastructure to change literally every second of every day, there has to be constant interactions uh, with the finance function and the CFO and IT and engineering. And as the CFO needs to have tools that provide him or her with real-time visibility into what is being spent and you know, how that compares to budgets by logical business groupings, for instance, you know, budget versus action by department, budget versus action by, by person. Uh, because it's way too easy in this new world for an engineer literally with a credit card to spin up, you know, a $25,000 server in the cloud, totally forget about it, and then the company is continuing to pay the cost of that idle infrastructure. So um, we see this all the time with our new customers. This type of visibility I'm referring to is exactly what Cloud Health does. Uh, we provide CFOs this type of insight, and, of course, we use the Cloud Health platform internally to allow me to efficiently manage our our internal cloud costs. So it's a it's a much more dynamic and interactive relationship with not only just IT and engineering, but with all departments because clouds do touch all every department in a company. How has the emergence of the cloud affected how you look at the financial performance of the company, as well as the systems uh, that you're now using to measure the performance? Sure. So, uh, you know, the cloud allows companies to much more cost-effectively purchase IT infrastructure because with the cloud, you uh, you can purchase only what you need uh, and you can shut it down when you don't need it anymore versus the old world where you had to sort of over-provision uh, IT infrastructure for a year because you were going to grow during that year and you can't just go and buy a server a week. Um, so it's, it's really critical. And, and as we see it, uh, every large enterprise that is a customer or prospect has a cloud strategy today. Uh, and the only difference between these enterprises is the pace at which they're moving workloads from data centers to the cloud. So it's here. We're still on the front end of it. It's a huge opportunity. Um, and so the cloud has created a major shift of dollars from capital expenditure to operating expenses. You know, users of cloud services typically see much lower capital expenditures. And, and this really requires the finance functions to have to model the cloud spend's impact on, on revenue and bottom line. You know, here at Cloud Health, we don't have data centers and, and all of our core internal management systems are cloud-based. And really, in a rapidly growing company like ours, you have to constantly assess the capabilities of these systems and ensure that they're robust enough to serve your needs as you scale the company. Now, has the cloud changed, do you believe, how companies manage infrastructure? And clearly, you're, you're, you're already touching on that. But are there new roles that are emerging to help companies manage uh, their cloud infrastructure? Sure, uh, and I think we see this through the purview of our customers because our customer bases are actually the largest consumers of public cloud in the world. These are companies that are spending literally tens of millions of dollars a month in the cloud. And, and one challenge we've seen many customers struggle with is how to structure teams in the cloud-centric era. Because on the one hand, companies need to centrally manage their cloud environments as efficiently as possible. On the other hand, they want to give departments the freedom to take advantage of all the benefits the cloud offers, like ease of use and flexibility and agility. So they really want to facilitate decentralized management, but ensure that there's centralized governance to protect the company and the corporate brand. So there is a new role we're seeing emerging, and, it's in, and this is in our budget customers, and it has different names. It's can be a cloud optimization manager or a cloud steward or a cloud governance manager. And this is one person 
who sits at the center of the company and manages and automates the oversight of the company's cloud infrastructure. And that has to be someone who is you know, really strong technically, but also have a business sense for the company. And they need to be very effective at driving cross-functional teams because the cloud, as I mentioned, really touches you know, every department of a company and every senior leader in the company. The other area, Larry, we touched on in an earlier interview, and I think it's very, you had some interesting insights to share. When it comes to talent development today, it, it's interesting. What's different today than, say, uh, the pre-cloud days? Yeah, I think, um, well, for one, you know, we're building companies where a large and growing proportion of the younger employee base are millennials. And, you know, fortunately, they are exponentially more tech-savvy than prior generations and certainly my generation. Um, and I particularly enjoy working with the millennial generation because I find, you know, immense value in this generation's, you know, creativity, problem-solving abilities, and, and innovative thinking. Uh, and I guess I'd also be hard-pressed to find a generation, you know, more giving of their time. So I think millennials, as with any other generation, sometimes need the time to figure out what it is they want to do for the rest of their life. Uh, I, I had the same issue back when I was uh, in that age group. And, um I think one of the things we found here, and I really think needs to be core to successful, fast-growing companies today, is you really have to have mentorship at the, at the core of a company. I, th- I think this generation um, is very much motivated. They, they want to succeed, uh, and they seek out mentors. So I think you know part of our success is this has been a core value of our company, and it's allowed us to attract and retain you know really superior talent who uh, is you know innovative technically and, and really push and drive innovation here. With regard to talent gaps, if and when uh, did you determine there was a need to hire someone, and and what was the criteria uh, today that you use? Well, yes, I, w- I would say you know back when you were building financial organizations back you know in, in the earlier part of my career, um, you're obviously looking for smart, motivated people who were you know technically proficient at accounting and financial analysis. But they didn't necessarily have to be strong technically because uh, big legacy monolithic systems were being built. Uh, you know, if, if I think about my own career, I mean, ERP systems have been around for a long time. Um, and, but then a lot of other applications that were built uh, were built custom. And so as a user of that system, uh, you know, a financial person would input in terms of the design, uh, then it would get developed. But, but now um, infrastructure is being built in companies using best-of-breed solutions. So you can buy best-of-breed, you know, CRM or, or marketing automation or contract management or expense management is another example. So um, I, I think um, to the, the, today's finance professional needs to be very strong technically, needs to you know, understand how the, all of these systems integrate and be able to, on a you know, daily functional basis, uh, be able to interact with those systems. And, and I, I think, you know, the good thing is this is being taught now, you know, obviously at a very young age. And, um, and when it comes to us sort of, you know, attracting engineering talent, uh, this is this is now a, you know, a generation that, that is, you know, strong technically, not, you know, and again, back in the day, you just didn't need to be that strong. How has the cloud helped your team to become more focused on customer success, Larry? Well, I can tell you, I joined the company about a year ago, and our customer success platform was an Excel-based uh, spreadsheet um, where we would, you know, just house just enormous amounts of information. And we, today we have over uh, 2,000 customers at this point. Um, and so what we did was we just implemented uh, a best-of-breed uh, cloud-based platform. It's, it's actually called Gainsight. Um, and what it allows us to do is gather an enormous amount of information, real-time information from our customers and uh, and their level of satisfaction, and it allows us to, in a very efficient way, 
serve up, you know, we sort of have a red, green, yellow um, scoring system. Um, so this, this new cloud platform has allowed us to basically harness a bunch of information and automate something that uh, was incredibly cumbersome. And uh, we, we have a company with, with very, very low churn rate. We, we, most customers, when they come, they, they stay. Um, and so we always knew that our customer success team was doing a good job. Uh, but now we actually have, you know, a platform that allows us to actually quantitatively measure that. Okay, that was Larry Begley, CFO of Cloud Health Technologies, supplying us with a nice uh, business case uh, for uh, the adoption of cloud technologies today. Uh, next, we're going to have Albert Peng, again, president of Apps Run the World. Albert's going to take a deep dive for you and um, give you some sense of how big this market really is, how it's going to be touching businesses in all sorts of ways. Uh, right after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Albert Peng now joins us. Again, Albert is president of Apps Run the World. You want to check out his site. He has lots of research and data available to you on that site. Albert. Jack, what I am uh, going to do is to put today's discussion into a, a better context. Earlier, you have um, heard of the business case of embracing the cloud from a CFO and a practitioner, and Larry has done a fabulous job with that. Uh, now I'm going to talk about the future of the cloud and how you as finance executives should position yourselves in this new era of um, digital transformation. My, my agenda is to give you the latest research findings from our team of researchers all over the world that they have been aggregating data from um, the, both the supply side, uh, consisting of uh, 3,000, more than 3,000 of these cloud applications vendors, as well as from the demand side. You know, we're talking about more than 150,000 customers running these applications and uh, whether they're going to uh, make some changes to their existing systems. So as everyone is, is, is talking about, you know, this cloud platform, I'm going to also dive deeper to give you our perspectives on how to succeed with this new uh, platform. Then I'm going to show you some of the, the best practices of finance executives, you know, especially from those that have invested heavily in, um, in cloud technologies. You know, each year we do this kind of um, supply side and demand generation research in order to give you the full picture of the enterprise applications marketplace as customers are getting ready to migrate to the cloud. 
Last year, 2016, the cloud applications market grew to $57 billion in recurring revenues. And that's, you know, uh, a big change. We're talking about up 21%, more than we expected, you know, back in 2016, because the gap between the revenue bookings and the revenues being recognized might be narrowing. Historically, the cloud applications market has been undercounted because of the lack effect you know, between revenue bookings and revenues being recognized. Some vendors might report triple-digit increases in the former, while the similar uplifts in their reported revenues would not be showing up until a few years down the road. Now, with improved go-lives, as well as larger-than-ever installations that allow vendors to monetize their subscribers faster, the cloud applications market may be experiencing growing momentum through 2021. Going forward, we project a more moderate growth for the market through 2021 because of the laws of the big numbers. You just can't expect to add another 9 or $10 billion on top of what you have already established, given the fact that, that the cloud now is, is, is making up close to 30% of the market and it's going to represent as much as half of the market over the next several years. So growth will be decelerating as everything else gets bigger and demand starts slowing down as well. Much of the growth will be coming from the emerging markets, you know, uh, places like Colombia, South Africa, Sri Lanka, places where Internet use, especially among corporate users, are outpacing that in more established you know, countries, especially from a growth perspective. The United States still accounts for the bulk of the market, but given the growth from, from non-U.S. You know, uh, uh, countries, the hold by the United States on the cloud uh, applications market will be loosening. On the vertical side, it's much more evenly distributed. You know, still we expect uh, not heavily software-driven verticals like utility and distributions will begin to catch up with the advent of new technologies like, you know, the Internet of Things and mobility as well as artificial intelligence. Next slide, you know, shows you the top 25 cloud applications vendors and their uh, uh, revenues, you know, uh, over the past few years, with Salesforce continuing to lead this space, followed by SAP, Microsoft, and Oracle. The cluster of leading applications, cloud applications vendors, have been growing quite nicely. In some cases, uh, faster than Salesforce, you know, both from an organic sense as well as from acquisitions. Incidentally, among the top cloud top 500 vendors that we track, there have been at least 121 ownership changes since the beginning of, the, uh, of 2016. In other words, nearly a quarter of them have gone through some kind of M&A over the past year. And just recently, in you know, a burst you know, in the cloud uh, BI analytics space was picked up by um, uh, or, uh, Info, while Oracle bought more for um, digital measurement in the cloud. Suffice it to say that you can't really go a day without hearing these deals you know, in the software market. The good news is that Software companies never die. They just change their names. What's more remarkable about the life cycle 
of many software companies is that because they have been selling into their install base for quite some time, and it's almost unheard of that their customers will disappear after their software vendors have been acquired. What ends up happening is that the products get extended for a long period of time after they've been acquired, and most of them will continue to operate fairly independently, meaning that the level of integration that is touted as one of the key reasons behind the M&A is painfully slow to materialize if they happen at all. Another interesting thing about the cloud applications is that most of these products are designed for a single purpose. Gmail for email, Marketo for marketing automation, and Zero for accounting. These products are never meant to be integrated in the first place. So if one of them gets acquired by another entity, it will continue to be sold, delivered, and extended on a standalone basis, independent of the cloud platform of the parent company. So for, for, the, for the serial acquirers, the cloud platform that they talk about as their key differentiator rarely covers the products that they just acquired, and is not in the near term, and perhaps not likely to happen until three to five years down the road. In a fast-moving market like cloud applications, trying to keep the status quo for three to five years, it could result in a fair amount of risk and uncertainty. Still, the, 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 in the software industry, the amount of inertia following any acquisitions, large or small, could be quite, quite striking. Yes, we all know that these M&As are designed more of a, of a land grab than anything else. But one unintended consequence of these deals is that they end up creating more silos or more platforms than one can bear. And software companies never die. And it's quite even possible that software may outlast anything in the physical world. Now, this slide really talks about you know, how the, 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 the evolution of the cloud platform, you know, and it's becoming such a contentious issue because as to what constitutes a platform. You know, platform is supposed to be something you stand on. A, a software platform is more like a conveyor belt that delivers all kinds of cloud services to anyone, anywhere. The more services you can pile on top of the conveyor belt, the easier it is for your customers because they don't have to spend time fetching these services from multiple sources. It makes perfect sense for Salesforce to become a distributor of someone, somebody else's IP and cloud services rather than developing everything on its own as a cloud provider. In the long run, all these platforms, similar to your uh, app store, will be places where you can get everything you need to get things done, like, like filing expense reports electronically that, uh, that uh, Dave was talking about. Another example is the C3 Energy, which was started out by Tom Seabold uh, as an energy management apps vendor for mostly sustainability type of the implementation, like buying and selling carbon emission quotas and contracts. Now with the event of, the, of IoT, is basically positioning itself as a platform on which all kinds of sensors, IoT data will be distributed on behalf of a long list of vendors, partners, and customers. Think of it as a marketplace for everything that has to do with IoT. In order to do that, these platforms have to be open, easy to connect through API integration, or some other means, you know, open source, I suppose. But they have to have a robust brand capable of attracting millions of users. You know, good tools, plenty of documentations, and professional services capabilities are kind of the, uh, the, the, the means that they, they will make you know, a platform possible and scalable. 
um, the, the gating factor behind the success of all these you know, platforms will have to be the monetization part of the equation. Who's going to be making money off these and how the overall volume of transactions, both in terms of the number of transactions and the underlying value that they represent, will have to be handled. If, if the platform provider is going to be doing most of the heavy lifting you know, by providing the cloud infrastructure, should they be rewarded with the most or should they be control of the customers? When you sell things on, on Amazon, your customers are mostly dealing, dealing with Amazon, so which really has the complete control over the user experience as well as a 360-degree view of what the customers are, lo- are buying and why and, and when are they going to buy next. By the same token, the future of any cloud software platform will be predicated on who ends up controlling the buying experience and every little detail that allows someone to paint the full picture of the end user. And you know what? This is one of the biggest reasons that you want to work on multiple cloud platforms so that only you... Uh, you as a cloud vendor, independent of any cloud platform that you work with, has a clear picture of your target audience and how have they been, uh, they have been leveraging your IP or how, what you can expect from them. You may not be able to become the gatekeeper, but you darn sure want to know who passes through the gate. Next slide. This one, for, for that reason, we believe, you know, a shakeout is imminent because there are too many gatekeepers out there and not enough gate agents that actually monitor the traffic flow. So as I mentioned earlier, there may be too many silos and platforms than one can bear. Uh, this is a, uh, also a perfect storm being created. On one hand, you have mega vendors like AWS and Microsoft, Salesforce, positioning their platform as the best vehicle to deliver cloud services. On the other hand, the market is decelerating, as I mentioned earlier, and customer acquisition costs are rising and investors are betting on a new paradigm shift that the cloud is becoming a utility, which should really deliver consistent and predictable returns when they're able uh, to reach certain size. And the theory is that no utility company will go bankrupt once they're able to reach, you know, uh, capture a, a captive audience, you know, is, is as steady as you can go. Dividends and more dividends for years and decades to come. The reality of the cloud is somewhat different because this is not like a power grid, not yet. Um, not everyone has a, has a backup generator. But at this juncture, it is not uncommon for customers or an ISV to spread the, the risks around by working with both you know, AWS and Microsoft Azure. You know, out of the desire to have more than one option and not to be locked into a single cloud platform, uh, more backup, you know, more uptime guarantees, and more easy to comply with different data sovereignty rules. Will they continue to do that and have their products running on multiple cloud platforms, but possibly on multiple databases because increasingly Amazon wants you to run on Redshift for better performance on AWS and the same applies to Microsoft, you know, wanting you to optimize Azure with a SQL Server and they just announced something today on, on, on the Azure, you know, Dynamo uh, uh, DB. The point is that there may be a disconnect there when you try to package cloud apps as a utility that has a lot of attributes as a commodity, which is pretty static and and perhaps slow to change, and how end users behave when embracing any new technologies, which could be fairly unpredictable, volatile, and subject to constant revision. Users may resist to change as they may have to assume considerable burden for change management. 
What I can tell you is that the cloud may eventually become a utility, just like the power grid, uh, but all the parties involved may have to adjust their thinking before that happens. So for the enterprise customers and CFOs in particular, the choice is you know, far from clear. When I mentioned earlier that, that the vendors are creating more silos and more platforms, the customers are doing their part as well. Our research shows that for every dollar they spend on outsourced technologies, they spend at least another 40 cents on in-source technologies. That translates into another $22 billion for cloud applications and in initiatives that all co companies uh, invested in last year, on top of the $57 bill that I that we just talked about. The outsource stuff is everything you buy off the shelf. The insource is everything you build, hiring your own developers and turning to cloud providers like you know uh, AWS and also working with uh, 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 service providers like you know, Cloud Health. Companies like GE Digital, State Farm, Robert Half are investing heavily in in-source cloud projects, including many for predictive analytics, data science, and artificial intelligence. One thing that they have in common with these in-source technology projects is that they are all designed to fix one thing. Outsourced cloud applications, especially those that are built by third-party vendors, are good at capturing data from all touch points, but they do a less than admirable job delivering the data in a format that enables decision makers to make these intelligent decisions. In other words, it's kind of like, you know, Hotel California. You can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. So your data continues to reside in an area that is almost impossible to reach and make sense of. A lot of these you know, cloud services give you basic rundown of what's happening with your operations, but you can really visually examine them because these data points are changing by the minute. You really can pinpoint areas where you need to uh, improve upon uh, perhaps you know, until after the fact. So a lot of these you know, customers are spending enormous amounts, sometimes at a ratio of 2 to 1 or 3 to 1, on in-source versus outsource to make sure that the data they're capturing are something that they can rely on, you know, make some preemptive moves in, in order to, to do better planning and preventive maintenance or some, so simply you know, providing alerts you know, on something that could potentially go wrong. That's the value of these in-source technologies given that these customers have the domain expertise that their cloud applications vendors sometimes fail to deliver. So another good reason is that it is strategically important to keep these in-source cloud initiatives going at a time when it's easier than ever to spin a cloud instance using AWS or Microsoft Azure. So what it means is that the overall market will be growing at different directions and, and keeps moving with some companies spending an inordinate, uh, inordinate amount of energy and resources on in-source versus outsource in order to sustain the competitive edge. One of the, um, the good examples of this happening right now is in the banking and financial services with all kinds of uh, fintech you know, startups you know, that have been uh, popping up and disrupting the, uh, the marketplace. So if you try to predict the future, you know, banking is also a good start. On the left, you see that the number of bank branches in the U.S., which had been growing quite dramatically until the financial crisis hit in the, in the 2008 time frame. Since that time, the number has remained fairly stable, a little bit of, uh, over 90,000. One thing that is worth noting is that the onset of ATM machine has not resulted in the demise of, of bank branches or bank tellers for that matter. In fact, the more ATM machines are out there since they were introduced in 1969, 
and they didn't catch on universally until 1980s when all these you know, ATMs uh, networks have been connected on a global level, allowing bank customers truly to go anywhere in the world and be able to access cash just like they were back home. It seems that the more ATM machines are out there, the more bank branches have to be built. But what's happening is that it's incredibly expensive to store cash and move these bills around, something that the banks are loath to do these days. So they're all investing in the next big thing, which is mobile payment. Bank of America is now adding about 1 million mobile bank use, uh, banking users a quarter, and they're investing heavily in all kinds of mobile-related projects, all on their own, spending more than $3 billion on technologies and innovations, much more so than they have been doing in the past. What it tells you in the first case is that technology begets more brick-and-mortar requirements, and the second case is that digital transformation begets more homegrown technology investments because banks now feel that they need to innovate on their own, not solely relying on other technology vendors to get things done. The bottom line is that seems to be the more technology out there, the more time and resources one has to find in order to feed this beast. In the interim, we believe that cloud explosion will only force companies to invest more in building more cloud projects. The result is a proliferation of, uh, of uh, technology initiatives born out of digital transformation. So like I said earlier, there will be more silos and more cloud platforms. The issue is how are you going to allocate your resources to mitigate the risks through diversification? You don't want to bet on the wrong technologies, and that means you have to you know, kind of bet on many different kinds of technology project, projects. So how do you decide not to put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak? It's all about you know, diversifying your risk. You know, the IoT you know, project here is a case in point, you know, putting you know, internet uh, of things in a chicken farm. Not only is IoT going to be pervasive, but it raises the question of core versus context and where you're going to invest in order to stay competitive in the digital age. Not putting all your eggs in one basket means that whether you're going to invest 80% of your IT budget on your core versus 80% on your context. For the former, you probably uh, uh, want to invest in off-the-shelf you know, cloud applications to lower your costs or keep your SGA you know, in check and you know, boost your margins, and, and you just do that to keep the lights on. Or you put that 80% into your context using a lot of in-source technologies to innovate your, your, your context, your brand, your ability to fetch you know, premium pricing that your customers are willing to pay. Our assessment is that most customers will have to strike the balance between investing 80% in your core or 80% in your context. And you know what? This could be the most difficult decisions one can make in the new era. And if you don't do it right, it could end up costing you not just a bundle, but your, but your staying power. Whether you're going to spend 80% of your budget on outsource or insource, you still need to win the support of your key stakeholders because that's the key determinant of your long-term success. A successful digital transformation is not merely about gaining a competitive edge. Yes, that's important, but the limit test is how well utilized it is, both for key stakeholders inside and outside the companies. The old saying uh, that if a tree falls in the forest, and no one hears about it, it didn't happen. The new world of digital transformation is similar to that. If you don't have enough support from other key stakeholders within your company, your digital transformation efforts are bound to fail. Which leaves us with the, 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 the another, uh, another best practice for finance executives, collaboration and trust. Go hand in hand. Without the former, the latter would not happen and vice versa. 
The challenge for finance executives in this new era is that you have to build a platform to facilitate the coming together of that kind of collaboration and trust. Because information is coming from all kinds of places. You look at Glassdoor with salary information being posted by insiders, employees. And then you also have a look at Zappos, uh, which sells shoes online. You know, the founder is a true believer of holocracies, which basically eliminates all the titles and, and corporate hierarchy. With that all as a backdrop, you as a CFO will have to pivot as well because team collaboration is important. So it's building a platform that fosters cooperations across different lines of business. And one of the legacies of the 2008 uh, financial crisis is that there has been an erosion of trust in the workplace. So survey after survey tells you that employees these days are becoming far less engaged than they used to. So we believe technology can help restore trust, but only if you're willing to take it upon yourself and make the technology part of the solutions rather than a stopgap measure to shift the conversation. There's very little that anyone can help a company if they don't have good products or lousy servers or, or outdated business processes. What cloud applications can do is, is to, to redevelop, whether you develop in-house or outsource, uh, is to help restore the trust in the system. And having such systems in place is not necessarily a formula to success, but it gets you close to the end. In my humble opinion, the cloud era represents the best opportunity for any vendor or customer to build a platform. But the most vital platform in the world remains trust, and so far technology has contributed a small part to make that happen. The rest is up to us. With that, I'm going to turn it back to, uh, to Jack. Albert, thank you. Someone asks for lagging organizations, and I guess this is uh, cloud adoption, there are laggers. When it comes to cloud adoptions, are there specific functions that you'd recommend for piloting the adoption uh, within an organization? So this is a, an organization that's not uh, ahead of the curve with the cloud, and it's wondering if there are certain functions where it might be easier or perhaps less risk to adopt the cloud. Oh, well, you know, we are seeing already a lot of functions uh, and, and capabilities being delivered by cloud applications companies that are really becoming well entrenched right now. I mean, so these are the low-hanging fruits there, you know, things like certainly, you know, customer relationship management, you know, uh, email marketing. These things are just table stakes right now, but you really need to get one step further. You need to really ask yourself just does this consistency with what we do, you know, uh, from a business process point of view, and the same applies to some of these internal, you know, procedures, whether it's filing a tech uh, expense report or the, or doing, you know, invoicing. All of these things are, you know, like I said earlier, you want to invest now because you know the, the first mover advantage, you know, is very important for anybody. But the second part of it is that you definitely want to evaluate whether you want to really invest at eighty percent of your budgets on on really getting uh, some of these processes processes in a much better shape you know, than, than you were in, in the past. You might, it might take you a month or two you know, to do some of these things. Now, you know, you, you, with the event of, of the cloud and, and this agile development cycle, you should be able to do that in a week or even in, in, in days. So I think those are the really good examples of whether you're doing um, uh, uh, procurement or HR-related type of uh, you know, uh, recruiting of, uh, of talented uh, applicants and whatnot. So those are the things that are just really becoming low-hanging fruits, and everyone really should, you know, tested and, 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 and really start you know, coming up with a, with a strategies to, to execute on those plans. Okay, 
Albert Peng. And again, uh, the company's apps run the world. Check out his site. A lot of wonderful rankings and lists uh, that give you a nice overview of the cloud market today. And of course, Larry Begley, we'd like to thank as well as our marquee CFO for this episode of CFO Fault Leader. We're looking forward to bringing you more CFOs like Larry, more forward-looking CFOs like Larry in our new season. Uh, For CFO Thought Leader, this is Jack Sweeney. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney with a quick note that CFO Thought Leader now has a quarterly print magazine. That's right, print. Each issue will profile 25 different CFOs. Let me repeat that. 25 CFOs. Other uh, print publications are lucky if they're able to bring you five CFOs per issue. What we understand is that you want to consume content in multiple ways. But wait a minute, there's something more here. We wanted this print magazine to be a podcast companion. So when you receive it, we want you to quickly thumb through it and maybe identify which episodes you have missed. We want you to dog ear those pages, as well as uh, perhaps the pages that feature CFOs from episodes you already listened to, but found maybe a little extra value from. 12 months later, you will have a library of 100 CFO profiles highlighted with your insights or comments alongside the CFO thought leaders. Now, how much are we charging for this one-of-a-kind 100 CFO profile library? Annual subscriptions are $119. We think that's reasonable. We thought about it a little bit, but that's that's what we came up with. Uh, visit us and subscribe to CFO Thought Leader magazine at cfothoughtleader.com, where the future of finance is listening.